Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Justin Broderick. Even though he rose to notoriety fronting industrial metal titans Godflesh, Broderick has always been an electronic artist at heart. From an incredibly early age, music served as a source of creative refuge for this shockingly eclectic talent. Ranging from excruciating rhythmic noise to techno, drum and bass, dark hip hop and transcendental ambient, there's not much he hasn't experimented with over his fearsomely prolific career. Recorded in between sets at Roadburn Festival in the Netherlands, RA's Holly Dicker gets an insight into the pivotal moments of his creative evolution and how he uses music to work through the travails of everyday life. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with Justin Broadrick is up next. night you performed as Godflesh and you played the Selfless album from 1994. Is this a particularly special record for you? Really it's the for, for me the most resonant Godflesh albums or the ones that impacted us most emotionally ended with Selfless essentially. Um, it started with like the self-titled mini album then Street Cleaner Slave State by way of the album Pure. A Slave State was the album when we first started using a lot of sampling technology and even sampled uh, the seminal Stack Humanoid, which was like 91 or something. Selfless is pretty much for me, um, and for us collectively as a band, Godflesh lost its impetus and lost its way a little after this, this album. So for me, it was like the last record where... Can you... Um elaborate a little bit yeah i mean after the album selfless yeah which was made in 1994 the following album was songs of love and hate in 96 and we actually started using a real drummer for, for, for a variety of reasons that's really not necessary to cover but we you know essentially godflesh is now what it was intended to be which was this beat you know beats driven by machines guitar, bass and vocals, you know, with samples and etc. But, but, but with the album After Selfless, incorporating real drums, sort of, you know, in, with the benefit of hindsight, sort of um, compromised the original vision, essentially, so to speak, I think. But we felt it was the natural thing to do at the time and we're trying to explore the ground. So the albums after were sort of, they were, you know, they feature a lot of hip hop samples and beats like this and they still have, they're just, as, as a whole, those albums don't resonate like the albums prior and Selfless, the one performed last night, being the last one, really, I think. It's also a very interesting album 
in terms of that, it touched upon where I eventually went with the Project Yezu, where it's got this, you know, on the peripheral, it's got this sort of shoegaze thing going on as well. I wanted to say that's that's the impression I got from the crowd. Um, it really reminded me of Yezu. The way yeah. you're, the, I think your vocals and the way it felt a lot more um, soulful, less yeah. less aggressive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this is it, this is, we're selfless. It's still very much a Godflesh album, but it, uh, it really explored a flip side of, of, of what we, we had already, you know, obviously we'd made super, so, you know, arguably aggressive, but, you know, sort of very violent albums, like violent emotionally, like um, Street Cleaner and Pure. Yeah, Selfless definitely has this sort of shoegaze spirit as much as it has the aggressive thing. And it's a really interesting, al you know, it's a very, very interesting album. And for me, the last pure record that we made, I, f I feel everything after that was somewhat diluted until we reformed and made the last two records, which again, feel like, you know, w w the, the albums that I want, really w wished I would have made, but I've made them now, you know, obviously later, later in our career or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and that's it now. We've Roburn, we've played three albums in their entirety. And the, the, that that's it. We've Godflesh will no, never do an album again at Roburn. It's, it's, it's just can't do it anymore. No, no, that's it. And you can't do a whole new album. It's like that's not the point. So it's like, so we've done you know the retro thing, and we've done these entire records. And I was quite emotional for that last night because I knew that that was the end of that chapter as well. As it was with Godflesh back in the day. Ironically, that was the end of of, of stage one, which you know really we probably should have finished then and came back again like we did. But yeah. I guess we're sort of hovering around the question, so let's ask it. Um, why did you split up Godflesh and why did you decide to come back again? Yeah, um, I mean, essentially, yeah, we, we split in 2001. Oh, well, I think it was finally finished in early 2002. It felt like it split in 2001. But um, essentially, the other half of Godflesh, Ben Green, left. He left the band just after we'd recorded the album Hymns. But he left the band on the eve of uh, what was a, basically a world tour. And he left it to, he just wanted to pursue a different lifestyle now. He'd, he'd completely had it with it, I think. Uh, for me, obviously, I knew I was in the music thing for life, you know. So I had to sort of replace him at about two weeks notice, which was quite sad. Uh, and, and then we pursued, you know, when, uh, you know, it was, it was just me left with a, a real drummer, which was Ted Parsons, who was in Prong and Swans. Uh, and Ben's replacement was um, uh, Paul Raven, who was the bass player for Killing Joke, Prong, and uh, unfortunately, he's he's not with us anymore. And we went on to do a world tour, which felt completely wrong to me, and I had a complete stress, depression about it, and panicked, and was on the eve of, of the day of leaving for an American tour. I, I split the band there and then. I had a complete breakdown about it, like couldn't couldn't move, couldn't get out of bed totally panic-stricken, depressed, you know. Anxiety had finally got the better of me and I just wasn't happy anymore at all and it just imploded, really. Wow. Is that because, you know, Godflesh is such an important um, part of your life? Or, yeah. Or was there also other things perhaps going on at the time? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there was, there was, there was some other things going on in my life, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Godflesh had been since, you know, the late 80s. And at that stage, you know, it was like, yeah, 2001, 2002. It didn't reach a natural end at all, unfortunately. You sort of cut off a bit. Yeah, it was premature. I mean, you know, with Ben leaving, really, well, I should, you know, in, in hindsight, I should have just said, 
when he said he was leaving, like, well, that's it, pretty much the end of it. It should have finished there and then. I shouldn't have went down the replacement route and pursued a tour, but because it was so close to a world tour, and I was also completely financially dependent on the band, I couldn't just walk away from it, you know. I mean, Ben was going to go back to the university and pursue other work, you know. I didn't have that luxury of either A, a decent education, or B, the inclination to do anything but music, you know. Yeah, because um, um, when we last spoke in 2012, the playing favourites, I remember you sort of spoke quite vehemently about school and, you know, yeah. quite a host, like for you, it felt like a hostile environment. Yeah. So, yeah, so you left school quite early, right? Yeah, yeah, I didn't even finish my GCSEs, you know, I think I left 15. I, I, mean, I remember walking out mid-exam and just not being motivated. But I mean, I was completely besotted with music then. I was in Napalm Death already, you know. So, you know, I was, a, I was a schoolyard musician, you know, already pursuing music, already going to shows, being sneaked into shows. How many records did you release before you were like 18 or something? Um, a lot. I think about three <laughs> albums, yeah, by the wow. time I was 18. And then Street Cleaner was, you know, the album arguably, you know, made such an impact on the metal scene and sold hundreds of thousands of albums and a very, very popular record and it's got this legacy and all this stuff. I was 19 when I recorded that record, you know, which is pretty insane, really. How do you feel about it now? Really proud, in a way, of that I managed to make this album that's been, you know, somehow a landmark record. And, you know, it, it's credited as, you know, changing the face of modern metal and, you know, and all this sort of stuff and having a prolonged, sustained impact on, the, on that sort of music. I feel quite amazed by it. But somehow achieved the same thing with the first Napalm Death album, you know, that already had this... That was like an overnight success, so to speak, and, and probably even wilder success than, than like Godflesh because it was so, so unexpected. And like I said, you know, we were three little kids making that Napalm Death Scum album and I was like 16. How did, uh, how did that band form? How did you all meet? I, I, I mean, I essentially, with Napalm Death, joined someone else's band. You know, I was invited into someone else's band, which was Nick Bullen and a guy called... Uh, well, his, his punk nickname was Rat, but his name was actually Miles Ratledge. But uh, I met Nick Bullen in a part of Birmingham called the Rag Market, which was legendary for like music stalls and bootleg stalls and all this stuff. And I, I chanced a chance meeting upon him and he was like my age and he said he had a band called Napalm Death. And I was like, aren't you on a Crass Records compilation? And he was like, yeah, we're on Bullshit Detector 3. And I was like, oh God, I actually own that. And then I realized like, you know, it felt that. And then I basically, I played him my ambient project final, gave him a cassette of it. You know, I was about 14 or something, 14 and a half or something like that, almost 15. But at the time with my ambient project final, which started off as a pair of electronics project in like 1983 or something when I was like 13, I'd started flirting with guitars and this sort of post-punk thing, like a sort of pseudo killing joke meets crass meets discharge, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he was really enamored with that. And he sort of almost immediately joined, invited me into Napalm Death because they were crumbling at the time. They'd never made a full record, you know. In, in a very, very short amount of time, me, Nick Bullen, and then we discovered, well, I actually discovered Mick Harris, who we all know now as, you know, as Scorn and so on. I saw Mick Harris drumming for a psychobilly band and playing really fast and with an energy without a fan was just stunning. And he, he came up to me at a Napalm Death gig saying like, if you ever need a drummer, I'm here. Come and watch me rehearse. And I went and watched him rehearse with some like real, like quite sort of dumb punk band. 
where there was him and another guy I know who could kill a bass player called Dave Cochran. And I couldn't believe them two. Mick Harris and Dave Cochran were both amazing musicians and both went on to have, you know, good careers and stuff. And I was just like, I need to take these two guys out of this band. How? <laughs> Stole them. Yeah, yeah. And I was only like 15 or 16 or something. I was like, how can this, how can we do this? But me and Nick Bullen talked about it and invited Mick Harris into the band and eventually like we sped up every song we had and we made Scum and it became like this, you know, iconic record or whatever. And which led, you know, Napalm Death imploded rather fast because three 16-year-old boys is never going to last. I mean, you were only really in the band for a year, right? It was actually longer, but we existed. I think by the time we... we, we I mean, I left quite shortly after making Scum. But I think really it was, it was about, you know, almost two years, I think. But felt like a lifetime, obviously, and still does. In Heinz, you know, in retrospect, seems like a complete life, as 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 your childhood often does. But yeah, it was pretty pretty damn short lived, really. But yeah, I made an awful lot of records by the age I was twenty. It was so stupid. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So you mentioned final there. Maybe you can expand a little bit on how that project first evolved as a fourteen year old. Why Power Electronics? Yeah, yeah. Power, I mean, ultimately, Power Electronics. I think because it was it's a very Nice expression for a very confused, hypersensitive, depressed child, essentially, I think. I had already discovered, via Crass, I discovered Throbbing Gristle, and via Throbbing Gristle, I discovered things like White House and the whole very Xerox sort of uh, power electronics, British power electronics scene, and I was absolutely connected with it. I love the, the imagery, and growing up on a very depressed sort of council estate in Birmingham, it, the, the environment was, you know, it felt just like these records, you know. It felt like the front cover of a Throbby Gristle record where I lived. It was, it was factories. It was just bleak, co concrete hell, you know. And very, very few people around me recognised the hell they were living in, but I, I, I saw it for what it was. I was very sensitive to it. Uh, and I felt, you know, somehow, thanks to my uh, stepdad and my mum and, and their, they were already in bands in the 70s, you know. You know, I was around instruments and music all the time. I was around instruments, music, and a lot of drugs, because they took loads of drugs, and they and they had no. As a lot of people who brought up on council estates were exposed to everything and anything. You know, the drug taking was just in in like in my home all the time as as I was growing up. You know, and no coincidence that my actual father was a heroin addict. You know. So it's like, it's all tied into this whole big drug culture thing. Drugs and music, you know, was a big thing. And it was a big thing for me as, as, I, as I followed in their footsteps as well, so. I just want to read something that you said in our interview uh, from 2012, the Playing Favourites feature, which you can read, listeners. Um, you said, I think a lot of my music was a protest against both that environment and the way I felt I had to have a sort of hidden existence. Can you kind of elaborate on that? We yeah. were talking about sort of your school, um, the reason why you left school quite early and this sort of this concrete hell as you've just yeah, described. Yeah, I, th I think it's been, uh, I, th I guess what I was referring to there was, I, I, I went to a school because it was a council estate school. A lot of things like wanting to express, wanting to express oneself in a variety of, ways through through art basically would be frowned upon you know it would be seen like you were some namby pamby you know you know what i mean it was just i i had to adopt adapt sorry to my environment and school and choose quite carefully and be very selective about the people i hung out with just to be able to exist and get by uh and meanwhile you know like a coexistence where i would sort of pursue art essentially but my school 
and a council estate school is obviously not conducive to you know to to the nurturing of 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 artistic expression you know it's almost frowned upon laughed at i mean even the music classes you know if i if, even when i was like a 13 year old if i was in music class saying oh i'm a guitarist i get laughed at you know it was like no, nobody cared nobody wanted to nurture it nobody had any interest in it whatsoever and similarly with friends even though luckily i did meet a few other kids who were into punk rock but they're into punk rock because it was fashionable they soon got out of it as soon as it was, you know, the popular bands had finished. Wasn't cool anymore. Yeah, it's, it's done, it's done. I mean, punk was awesome for that in a way because a lot of people communicated in the late 70s and early 80s and stuff. But once once it had fizzled out and I was still then going to, you know, punk shows in 83 and going to see like, people like Crass and Killing Joke and stuff like that, very few were interested anymore and I'd be going on my own to these shows if I could get in young or I had one friend at school who was in the year above me who who would come with me and then I'd meet other people, you know, I'd meet people, meet people like Nick Bullen who was in Napalm Death. I'd actively search out anyone I could communicate with, you know. But this is all happening at such a young age and it was quite ridiculous really. Um, so what happened when you left Napalm Death and why did you leave? Was it sort of maybe a clash of yeah, I mean, personalities or something. Yeah, it was. It was the, like I was saying um, previously. Like it's, it's three, three, sixteen, seventeen-year-old boys essentially trying to make uh, music. The, the, the clashes were pretty. It was three quite volatile, um, very interesting personalities. You know, who are who are th you know three lads still growing up. You know, it was almost inevitable that there would be. As there is with any bands, I mean, bands are just full of, you know, historically just full of clashes and ego clashes and, and so on. Exactly. Which is why mostly I've chose to work quite, you know, on my own for X amount of years because it's just, it's just predictable. You know, power struggles, money struggles, ego struggles. It just becomes really like obviously gets in the way of the art eventually. Um, unless you can have a very, very understood ground and premise and you know which is a lot easier with people i've worked with for years and still continue to work with you know because we have understandings you know we know we we, we get each other you know like kevin martin like for kevin example. martin yeah yeah or you know also known as the bug um you know he and i worked together since the late 80s you know and now we've got this new project zonal um well it's an old project isn't yeah, it and which that's is it being brought back to life exactly it's been resuscitated with a better name Oh, yeah. Because the old name Techno Animal was pretty hideous. It was it was it was pre-Techno and it was meant to be an abbreviation of technological animal, which sounded really attractive at the time when we made our first couple of records. I wanted to ask, have you ever like had complaints because it, you're not making techno as techno animal? Has people like just I think back in the day I'm trying to think confused. Yeah, I mean we were quite active, you know. The, I remember the first tour we did of Germany. And it was it was a, a, a fan, really fantastic bill actually. This was back when things were really again. People often forget that in the nineties, you know, dance music culture was really wide. It was all encompassing, you know. So we did a tour of Germany where it was Techno Animal, DJ Rush, Porter Ricks, Alec Empire, and DJ Spooky. That sounds amazing. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> and we toured Germany like that. We did about eight shows in Germany of nightclubs, and it was intense as fuck i mean it was out there you know utterly out there um and really divisive as well you could see audiences you know grooving away to dj rush to be followed by techno animal where they'd just be pulverized you know then Alec empire then porter ricks to close the club at the end of the night it was killer and it was wide open you know it was like but on that tour many people were just like techno animal you don't play techno 
You know, so we knew there and then that, oh God, have we got a name? Do you know what I mean? So me and Kevin would often talk about shit. We've become quite established with this name, but what are we gonna do, you know? Obviously we went on to make quite a few, you know, quite a few records that were, you know, highly acclaimed critically, but we never really broke through to an audience. Hence why we, we eventually shelved the project and hence why X amount of years later we were discussing it again and that, look, we should come back with a fresh name. Zonal's a good name for this shit. Uh, and we should explore and pursue where we left off, you know, but maybe take it even further out, even heavier, but electronic music, but it's like, you know, the whole, it's a similar agenda again, you know, the slow-mo textural hip-hop beats, the layers upon layers of, so of it started synths. sort of ambient, kind of heavy ambient. Techno and hip, Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the first Techno Animal album was almost, I mean, it was all, it was very industrial, it was very textural, it was very noisy, it was, it only flirted with this hip hop thing and the thing that we'd eventually get into, but it used a lot of dub processes. And that's what Kevin and I were most obsessive about, was old King Tubby productions and things like that. And that's like something that always informed well, it informed everything that we do, you know, for, for, through, from Godflesh through to JK Flesh, you know, it's always informed by dub, archaic dub, uh, dub productions. You know, it's, it's, it's fundamental to everything and anything that we do, basically. And Zonal is, is, is again, is, 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 is pursuing similar ground, but with a, a, a much better name. <laughs> okay, before we dive into that, can you maybe tell us how you met Kevin? He put on your first Godflesh show, right? Yeah, he... Um... In his quotation mark shitty pub in Brixton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He managed to get a back room in... Um... He hadn't long moved to Brixton from Weymouth, actually, because Kevin's uh, actually from Weymouth originally. He managed to um, get a, 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 back, like a back room in some god-awful pub in Brixton. And uh, Kevin would literally buy records by people he loved. And back then, like a lot of us, would put our home phone numbers on records, you know, which is pre pretty brutal. Um, Did you ever get any weird phone calls? Back then, you wouldn't. That's the bizarre thing. Barely anyone would f would call these numbers, you know what I mean? Because cause the first Godflesh album, you know, we would obviously I was fresh out of Napalm Death uh, via a band called Head of David, which a lot of people forget about. Uh, but they're pretty, you know, pivotal as well in, in that scene back then, noise rock and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Kevin literally just phoned up the number. I remember picking up the phone and he just said, oh, you know, you don't know me, but I love the Godflesh record. I heard it on John Peel, you know. Uh, he said, I heard it on John Peel, loved it. Knew you were in Napalm Death. I love Napalm Death. I'm running a, a backroom pub in Brixton. Do you want to come and play this backroom pub? We hadn't played a single show at that point. We played in the, the one room me and Ben Green shared in a house in a part of uh, the only good part of Birmingham. We'd literally it's a good part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard to believe, but yeah. Um, Mosley, God bless the area. But um, but yeah, um, we'd literally played in a back room, and our first ever show was in this back back room pub in in Brixton. And when we met Kevin that night, I just immediately I had a, we just had an immediate rapport. We had the same bizarre, off the wall, quite sick sense of humour, and were extremely passionate about many areas of music, you know, like a whole, like ridiculously wide ranging. We immediately connected over so many things, it was ridiculous. He then was a member and and the the, the leader of a, a 12 piece band called God, uh, which fused like free jazz with noise, with rock, with avant rock. I mean, they were pretty, pretty amazing. They weren't when I first saw them, they were a mess. <laughs> They were, they were quite terrible, and Kevin would admit that himself. But there was a spark there. Kevin's performance alone, he was he was extremely passionate. What was his role in that band? He, uh, vocals and saxophone. 
Saxophone. Yeah, a lot I of did, people don't know I, Kevin as a saxophonist, you know. I did not know that. But yeah, he was inspired by, you know, free jazz, Sun Ra, Albert Eiler, and, you know. Does he still play the saxophone now, do you think? He, he, he would laugh about it if you even asked him, you know. I don't think last time I'd say, I said to him, have you picked up a sax in years? And he was just like, shit, I even forgot I played it. <laughs> you know, he said he hadn't picked it up in, in literally, you know, he, he couldn't even put a year on it, you know. But yeah. You know, I knew him as a saxophonist vocalist. And that was pretty much, I mean, you know, God was quite a thing for a while and God would play with Godflesh. You know, we, we, formed, we forged this bond quickly. He got me to produce or co-produce the first God record. Um, then I produced their next album. Then we ended up, I ended up playing live with God and we'd share bills with Godflesh as well. And then we often talked about, Kevin didn't have a studio then or even a sampler. He had a CD player that he'd use as a sampler, you know. He'd put loops on a CD player and go, what do you think of this loop? And that was how pretty much, uh, I had a small studio obviously for recording Godflesh. I was always enamored with home recording and wanted to record our own records. And uh, he still credits me to this day as teaching in production, which is hilarious because he's a, he's a killer producer and I fucking taught him shit, really. I just said, play with this equipment, do you know what I mean? You and, gave him the tools. Yeah, and I sat at the desk for a number of years, but we'd just be, you know, trying to urge him to get on there, you know. And he translated it and, you know, and he, he ran from there, basically. But yeah, you know, we just, we, 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 you know, after a couple of years of doing the God, Godflesh thing and playing together, et cetera, et cetera, and then Godflesh suddenly gained a lot of popularity via the metal scene accidentally. Um, he Why and do I, you say accidentally? Uh, right place, right time. I mean, Godflesh, when we made that first record, it was essentially a sort of noise rock record and we never expected to get off the John Peel show. Do you know what I mean? We thought the peak of our existence would be our John Peel session. <laughs> never thought we'd sell any more than a couple of thousand records, you know. But thank, really, you know, it's thanks to Mick Harris in a way. Because obviously when I left Napalm Death, Mick Harris ran with Napalm Death, you know. He kept it going. He got another load of guys in the band, another great set of musicians, and they continued to make fantastic records. So he ran with it and made, you know, killer records, continued to tour the world and made Napalm Death a somewhat, you know, household name, so to speak. It impacted metal. Mick then presented, he loved Godflesh, so he presented Earache Records, which was then becoming successful with the first Godflesh record. Uh, Earache somehow were convinced by Mick ranting about how great Godflesh are, so Earache Records signed Godflesh, you know. There was then this great big metal audience wanting to hear this stuff. We got presented to a big metal audience, basically, where we'd never have had that opportunity if it wasn't for Earache Records and Mick Harris playing. God, it's funny how things come round, you know what I mean? Um, I, I gave the first Napalm Death album to Earache Records when nobody seemed very interested at all. And then, you know, Mick then he got it. He got it back. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's it. Eventually it came back and then Godflesh was presented to a, a very big metal audience in America, essentially, first and foremost, who got it, you know, so we ended up selling hundreds of thousands of records. So when, when you were first starting out with Godflesh, did you not consider yourself a metal band? No, I never did. How would you describe what you were doing? I, I probably still I probably maintain the same thing for years that Godflesh was essentially a post-punk band a post-punk band with a whole gamut of influences you know and obviously we used metal we perverted metal we bastardized metal but you know I strayed upon metal as a kid I was never a metal musician you know I, I, I loved loads of metal obviously um, and the whole first 
movement of thrash metal I was obsessed with, you know. When I first heard the, the Metallica album, and it was underground music in like 84 or whatever it was, and then Slayer and Celtic Frost and so on. Of course, I was obsessed with this stuff. But I wasn't a metal kid. I was a punk kid coming to metal. And that's how I looked at like, and essentially a post-punk musician. And I say a post-punk musician because I wasn't learned in any art. And what I loved about post-punk is it was so open-ended, open you know, it's like, it's like listening to Public Image Limited now, they still sound as fresh as they did then, it's ridiculous. Because it's so abstract, it's so oblique, it's so outside, it's so periphery, you know, it's so, it, it's got its, its own language. And I wish to make a music that embodied so many negative musics, because obviously I was absolutely, you know, completely obsessed with negative vibe music. That's how I approached it, you know. I mean, Killing Joke was probably my biggest influence and in how they approach music. It was otherworldly. This weird mix of dub and and punk and, you know, and I just saw myself as continuing what Killing Joke were doing, but with a, an injection of metal and throbbing gristle, you know. Still now people say, you know, like with the latest Godflesh album, people go, so the industrial metal record of the year. I don't know what the fuck industrial metal is. I don't know another industrial metal band. It's like, to me, that's no accolade. I, I, I want to know I've made a great album, not I've made a great industrial metal album. You know what I mean? It's like, it's really, it's, it's, it's like with JK Flesh though, it's the other hand, if people say, oh, you've made a great techno record, I feel that would be more of an achievement because techno is a wide range in music that I've enjoyed since the fucking 90s, since the inception of techno, do you know what I mean? I mean, I remember seeing like Jeff Mills in 93 in London and Plastic Man and, you know, I'd go to these... I'd travel to London, go to clubs, drop loads of fucking ecstasy and rave all night long. You know what I mean? And, yes. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was it. I was there at the beginning of that shit. First Aphex Twin shows when he was supporting Orbital. And this changed my life. This, this resonated with me way more. Yeah, I saw Slayer back in the day. I saw Metallica with Cliff Burton. I saw all these. To me, it's all the same thing, you know. Electronic music was central to me all the time. Hence why Godflesh for me, is still an electronic band as well. I would consider it an electronic it, it band. It is, it really is. And it's it's approached electronically, you know, the way... I'm not a guitarist, I'm an anti-guitarist, you know. I almost sample myself. I, 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 I'm concerned with texture. And when I... I don't come up with riffs. I come up with almost samples of myself. Like, like I was saying, it's it's... It's, I don't, you know, I don't see myself sitting there playing a guitar. It's almost again like I'm playing a sampler. I'm looking at dissonance and I'll do the same thing when I program synths for JK Flesh tracks or for Zonal or like we did with Techno Animal or, and so, and so on. You know, it's, it's, it's a, these are all just tools of the trade, so to speak. They're just tools. They're nothing. I'm, I, you know, I'm not a guitarist. I'm certainly not a vocalist either. So it's, uh, <laughs> So it's fair, it would be fair to say that you've always been an electronic musician from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. Everything from sampling through to, I mean, you know, we, we, you know, getting the first samplers and so on. You know, sampling technology for me was one of the, the most exciting things that ever happened in music. It was more exciting than when I, learned, well, I, I taught myself to play guitar or taught myself to play drums. You know, these are all pivotal moments in my life. They're things I did when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old, you know. But sampling technology I dream about, you know, it was just the sort of thing where I remember, you know, reading about, you know, old Fairlight samplers and stuff like that. And oh my God, you could take 10 seconds of any sound in the world. I remember being so thoroughly excited by these concepts in the 80s. And I do now, you know, like the, the most recent Godflesh album, Post Self, you know, I approach that in, in as an electronic musician would approach putting together a, 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 an electronic music track, you know. 
everything's cut up, everything's resampled. Nothing is as it appears. It may appear like a song that was performed from start to finish, but it, it wasn't. It's all chopped up samples of, of my own shit, basically. It's all reprogrammed and, and, and so on. It's, it's composed electronically, essentially, but it's taking organic instruments, obviously. But I'm trying to find a voice through. I'm not excited by... Bands don't excite me, you know. Standing in a room practicing doesn't excite me. I don't get anything from that, you know. It's not. It's not interesting. Um, it's what I can do with these things. It's how I can revoice it. It's how I can make some different language out of the components of a band. You know, to me, bass, drums, guitar, and uh, some dude singing. It takes a lot for that to really have any. It's, it's got. You've got to. I'm trying to find something new all the time. You know, something fresh all the time. And I think taking that basic set up and then regurgitating it or reapproaching it. It's why I enjoy remixing as well, because I can take someone's music and cut it to pieces electronically, even if it's a band. You can, you know, recontextualize and then juxtapose things. And I find you come up with so many interesting things, you know, so much more that's interesting like that than just, it's, I mean, ultimately it's a reflection on my own limited capabilities as a musician. I find it more exciting to do that to reprogram a guitar via a computer than I do to sit there with the guitar and try and come up with these riffs, you know. I can come up with much more interesting stuff when I've removed myself and I come up with accidents, you know, and cut things to bits. So when did you start making techno music yourself? I started, first started pretty much with the Godflesh record, Slave State. Because we sampled Stacker Humanoid and because I was so obsessed with the early Acid House scene, I mean, Godflesh really turned shit on its head there. We made an album like Street Cleaner, which took two years to make, like, have a worldwide impact. It then had this impact. Meanwhile, while it was having an impact, I was getting obsessed with Acid House, you know. Late 80s, 1990. I heard Stacker Humanoid, and for me, it sounded like Godflesh in some weird, perverse sort of way. So I sampled Stacker Humanoid, made a, a Godflesh tune out of it, which most, a lot of metal people at the time thought was, just, well, what the fuck is going on here? What, what are they doing? This isn't straight cleaner, you know? <laughs> Loads of people got it as well, you know? I know so many people who turned to Godflesh because of that record, because it was such an unusual hybrid. I think around the same time I made that record, I was playing around with the stack of humanoid samples and introducing 4-4 kicks and stripping all the guitars away. And we remixed ourselves around that period where I was more and more reducing it I also had a big obsession with Meat Beat Manifesto at that time, and they were really, Great. yeah, utterly fantastic. The first album, I was just like, oh shit, you know, break beats can sound like this, you know, and noise and break beats and stuff like that. So Meat Beat Manifesto had a huge impact on me at that time, to be honest, besides all the obvious stuff. Then I heard Aphex, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, so early 90s, really, 91, 92. When I first heard Aphex's Didgeridoo, you know, I think it had just come out, and I was just like, Oh my God, again. Then I heard Jeff Mills and that pretty much, you know, changed my whole, you know, my whole way of looking at things again. Jeff Mills, Robert Hood, uh, then Plastic Man. And that was when I turned to quietly making my own techno, but it was just super shit. But I was making it like in 93, 94. What sort of other aliases do you have at this point? Yeah, okay. So by about uh, 94, reached 94, I'd been quietly making techno for quite a while. And obviously Kevin and I were doing techno animal, etc. I got to about, I think it was 94. We then heard Basic Channel, uh, which pretty much once again changed my life. Um, <laughs> Some life-changing moments. Yeah, many, many life-changing moments. 
I then realized that techno can also be that. I was in contact with, Carl, you know, old mate Carl O'Connor, Regis, Downwards Records. Um, he was working at a distributor at the time. And I even said to him, I've been making some stuff, techno, that I want to try and release. And he basically talked to this distributor and I had a record label for like, literally for about a year called Low Fiber, um, L-O Fiber. And I had aliases, a variety of aliases on this and did four records, which were all just basically Jeff Mills, basic channel influence stuff, anonymous what names. What was the alias? Uh, the label was called Low Fiber, L-O Fiber. I had a number of aliases. It was one was Solaris before X amount of people went on to use it. One was Hydrus. They're all just, you know, influenced by the anonymity of like, you know, how Jeff Mills would, would, would approach things and how Basic Channel approached their Basic Channel label, you know, them under a variety of aliases. Uh, and I just released them mostly on white labels and they filtered through to DJs and I'm, I didn't really pursue it. Carl was quite instrumental in helping that out at the time, but he also knew because he was working with the distributor that I wanted it to be a, a totally anonymous. But it wouldn't be publicized then. You know, this wouldn't be, the guy from Godflesh making techno records was not interesting to anyone back then. It would, it, it would, it would be of, of no consequence whatsoever. Whereas obviously the way music moved on and with globalization and all the rest of it, it's, you know, it's and all discogs. out there. And discogs and so on, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's all no out hiding there now. now. It's fine, yeah, yeah. And it's all good as well. You know, the amount of people I'll meet now who will be, I would consider maybe just a Godflesh fan or would be like, you know, mate, I'm totally into JK Flesh as well. I'll meet people who are into JK Flesh now who come from the metal scene and will say, it's got me into techno. You know, and they'll be into now, reel off this whole list of names I go into. And then obviously I'll meet people with JK Flesh at clubs who've got no concept of any other music I make besides that. And it's all good, you know, and it's all, that's, that's, you know, the way things have moved on. But, um, back then it was, it seemed to be in my best interest to be anonymous, but I shelved this label fairly quick. But so essentially I first started making records that made it into DJ boxes in techno in 94. I also then went on to make jungle in about 96, 97. I'm glad which you brought also that up. went on to being DJ boxes and I made records for a lot of notable drum and bass labels in that scene at the time and work, I worked, even worked with Dillinger for a bit and Dillinger was trying to get me on Valve for like a year or something I'd make him tunes that he would then go and give to like top drum and bass DJs like Randall and all the rest of it but as it I've, I've, I mean I I walked away from the drum and bass scene due to being completely frustrated by the, the, the DJ's agendas, basically. But Dillinger chased me down not long after I left the whole drum and bass scene. He left me a message saying, look, mate, I know what it's like. I have to cater to DJs. We've all got to cater to DJs. And he's like, I miss our conversations. I miss you making tunes and stuff. But it was around the time Godflesh split as well. So I walked away from that scene as well, you know. Went quiet for a bit, but... Um, so this this is as tech level two, right? And maybe a hundred other different Yeah, aliases. there was other aliases, which I even forget. But tech level two was one that existed for a bit. I made it in, you know, like Groove Rider played it often. I'd be on the Groove Rider show quite a bit. And and it made it into, you know, a lot of DJs would play the stuff around that time. Did uh, you ever DJ? Uh, I, I didn't at that time. I went to a couple of events. I met, I met a lot of people who ended up hanging out with like Technical Itch and Decoder and a lot of people from that time and Dillinger and people like that. And they were all promising to get me on DJ bills and all this stuff. But it never really happened at the time. It's quite weird. You think that's a missed opportunity or are you quite happy about that? I'm maybe, I, I, yeah, it's weird. 
I did, if, I, if, if that had happened at that time and it may have blown up for me. You might have been a drum bass DJ. Yeah, and it not may be have here. not got to this route as well. And I'm like, I'm really happy, like, say, where I'm at with JK Flesh now. And I'm really glad that I went down that route as opposed to, I mean, drum and bass lost it for me a lot, you know, and it's, it still sort of has. I still hear some great things, obviously. But there was a period there where it was, like, central to my existence, you know. As was techno at the time as well. I never, I never lost my foot with with either genre. Do you know what I mean? As I didn't with hip hop either, and so on. But you know, techno and drum and bass were really central to my. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like I was saying earlier, I, I, I never bought metal records. I, I bought techno and electronic music records, and I would live on Juno in the early days and spend too much money on you know that that pile of records I'd get from Juno every month and stuff. And if quietly learned to DJ on my own on my Technics in my in my house and just wish that one day I'd be going out and them Technics, you know, but barely ever got there and still end up with a guitar in my fucking neck. Or <laughs> or me and Kev on a mixing desk, which was another world as well, which would also be fantastic. But always dreaming about like I just want to be you know, I always would rather have been playing clubs than playing rock clubs, you know. Which has happened in the last couple of years with JK Flesh, so now I'm more no, I'm playing clubs more often than I'm playing rock clubs, you know, so it's like... But that's because I don't wish to tour. The rock thing, I'm not only tired of it, I don't like it as much, you know, and that's it. It's just not as, you know, trudging around rock clubs is highly unattractive, you know. Clubs are better, believe me, you know. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah, no matter how many people moan about, and DJs, electronic musicians moan about playing clubs, it's like, well, come and, come and tour, like, you know, rock clubs for two months, and, you know, you, you, it's, it's, that's hard shit. Yeah, let's now dive into J.K. Flesh. I mean, why 2012 was this moment that it kind of was born where I guess clearly it's something that is, you've been wanting to do for many, many years. Yeah, because yeah, what's interesting is because I'm probably sitting on about 17,000 tracks that I made between 1990 and 2012 that have never, never seen the light of day. One day, as J.K. Flesh becomes more renowned, I will eventually release all, all the stuff in the attic, you know what I mean? The, the, the basement tapes, all the old DAT tapes and the cassette tapes, and I'll trudge it all out to bore everyone to death with the, the shit that I never released, you know what I mean? That should have been JK Flesh, but I was too busy consistently making other stuff and consistently collaborating and also losing confidence. You know, it's another confidence thing. Sometimes I just, I mean, that's what half of this is, you know. Half of this music thing is finishing. And, and often... There's so many great musicians out there just stuck in their bedroom or their closet because they just can't finish a tune. And that's all it's about. It's about having the confidence to go, that's done and move on and I'll give that to someone. And, you know, I think the half of this music game is about that. And it's like, it's sad. I see so many people or I hear great tracks by or I've got friends who are just go, geez, that's fucking awesome. But they'll never finish it. They can never commit to finishing it. And it's that like, you know, I think I suffered that on my own solo thinking like, no, nah, this isn't good enough, this isn't good enough. Uh, and I lost confidence by the drum and bass scene as well. That pretty much kicked the shit out of me because everything was so DJ, you know, the, the agendas was all about DJs and what I'd constantly get back off drum and bass labels or people I worked with was, oh, you know, Randall played it out, but he weren't that happy with it and he thought the bass should be louder, so maybe you might want to go back in, in it. And the amount of times you would rework tunes for like DJs would just be incredible. Only to be told, you know, by the time you've remixed it like over a four week period, you know, to be told that, sorry, no, I just didn't cut it in the end. It was just soul-destroying, you know. It made me lose sight of what I was doing with electronic music, you know, which is why, in a way, I think I became quite enamoured again with with, with with techno because there was so much great stuff coming up in techno again. And it felt freer. 
obviously again it's an incredibly limited music but it felt freer again in 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 some context and textually techno has become closer to the drum and bass i loved in the late 90s you know there's a lot of textures now that have come from from that scene have been influenced by the early grime scene as well and garage and a lot of that stuff that i liked and and dare i say it dirty word the early dubstep scene you know what i mean the d word yeah 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 which you know when it was first came out of grime and garage it was pretty killer initially i felt you know there was people doing amazing stuff power productions exactly that that whole scene yeah the dark garage yeah 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 well yeah yeah i love that stuff you know dark side garage dark grime and stuff did you make any garage yeah i made made a few i mean me and kevin you know before we went into the bug and stuff we were playing around with a few things we had a lot of interest from that sort of scene you know where we were like you know, flirting with two, we, we, we did, you know, the, the whole 140 BPM, 135 BPM two-step for a while. We were definitely messing around with a lot of that. And I started messing around with it a lot myself. And I did again. And that was why JK Flesh was born from that two-step dark step scene. That was where what it, came, it came out of. Because um, it came out of um, somebody who should have been really popular, but they split on the eve of their popularity, like about, you know, when they're really about to take off was Cloaks. You know, they had their own label called 3 by 3 and they signed JK Flesh, basically. They also signed Dead Fader and they were like, you know, pretty instrumental in that post-dubstep scene when it was pretty, like, like Actress was a huge fan of Cloaks, for example. It was like his favorite band of that ex, whatever period it was. They signed me. And they were on the verge of really breaking, you know, because it was this whole two-step with noise thing. Evil textural bass lines, but layers of noise on top of, you know, two-step. So the first J.K. Flesh album, Posthuman, was touching on that. The only reason I put guitars and vocals on it was because the guy from Cloak, Steve, who signed me, said, why didn't you put some of the guitars on it? Because and just give it some other flavor. Because it sounds like ultra dark step two-step you know and I was like that's fine I'm happy to make that it's like this weird dark step techno hybrid but he was like why don't you fuse it and you'll get your fans in and, and shit like that just sort of did and then regretted it that label went down anyway and I stripped it all back again and then started to get a lot more interest again you know maybe I'm starting to feel like you know you make music for other people and then hate it yeah um, because and then when you make music just for yourself then you know that's it. You're not you're not pandering to other people's tastes. It's pr- probably quite true. I think initially, apart from like my rock music, a lot of my electronic music has followed maybe somebody else's agenda somewhat, or a label agenda, or something like that. Which you know, obviously, arguably, one can lose their identity in that process but you learn a lot and then can come out the other side with your identity intact and then do it on your own terms hence the jk flesh thing it's definitely i mean for me i'm I'm making techno you know and that's what i wanted to make but it's some weird hybrid informed by all this other music that i make very noisy techno. yeah it's still noisy techno and it's it's got this sort of but for me as well it can't be like i don't like you know industrial techno and that that whole thing is can be killer but for me it misses the funk, and I still love the funk. And that's what me and Carl would often talk about, Carl Regis, you know. We talk about our love of early Mills and Robert Hood and stuff like that. It's because it had a funk to it as well. It would You could still swing, it had a swing. And we don't like just this jackhammer techno, you know. That, that To me, still sounds like early Gabba sometimes, and I was never a big Gabba fan. I like some of the early Gabba shit, but it lost the funk, it lost the swing. And, uh, me, you know, Carl and I would often talk about it. it's got to have swing, it's got to have some sense of funk. 
not just layer upon layer of noise with a underneath it. You know, it's like characterless, it's cold. And I'm still not a fan of that sort of techno now. It's got to have some sort of some shuffle to it, you know, which I still feel is what I'm doing. It's a, it's a weird mix of that. You know, of course, it's informed by all my old influences, Throbbing Gristle, Cabaret Voltaire and so on. But it's also informed by the early mill sound, you know, and early Aphex as well and stuff like that. And then, of course, it's swung around from what, like things like Godflesh and, you know, and, and it's textural music again, essentially. And it's also informed by drum and bass, the 90s drum and bass sound and so on. So it's loaded, ultimately. But if somebody says to me, cold, like, what's JK Flesh? I'll say it's techno. It's techno in its broadest sense, but yeah, it's got a lot of noise in it, and it's got a, it's textural, and it's pretty fucking nasty as well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's nasty music. Yeah. But I mean, that's sort of your career, really. I think that's the that's the red line through everything. The kind of this nasty, or you think you were use the word excruciating music. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tra tra transcendent as well. Yeah. Be a good word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it is ultimately, because again, it's it's used functionally. I think, you know, for me it is, it's functional music and it's always used to, to, to transcend. For me personally, my anxieties, my stresses, the depression I suffer, the, the blackness I feel on a, uh, the void I feel on a daily basis, the hurt, everything. Music is a vehicle for transcendence and just to, you know, to both perform it and to create it is to step outside of myself, basically, because I'm just fucking sick of myself. I've been since day one, you know. I just, I just want to step away from myself and make this alien music, which embodies, you know, everything that I, I'm not, you know, in some ways. You know, it, that, that sort of is a vehicle for my own frailty and weakness, and so I can uh, uh, attain some sense of power through this music you know and, and, and again it's, it's you know it's a, a way to rise above the, the pains of just you know waking up and facing the day and going to bed and facing another one you know you cannot live without making music it's it's just too important yeah 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 absolutely j j you know as, mu as much as i can't live without being needed or i couldn't live without my son or i couldn't live without you know the love of my partner and, and, you know, and so on and, you know, and all the rest of it. But yeah, and yeah, music is like, it's absolutely central to, uh, to, to everything. Yeah. I think without, you know, this, 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 without me being given the luxury of being able to express myself in this way, I'd have no idea what, what, what I would, would or could be, but I'm sure, you know, because I have been given the luxury of expression, then it's quite easy for me to say, I couldn't live without doing this, but I'm sure if I had never been given this avenue, uh, I'm sure I'd be happily doing whatever, or maybe I wouldn't. I'd be completely unhappy doing some bizarre thing that I wouldn't be skilled at, because I have no other skills. I don't have skills at making fucking music. It's just a complete accident. Uh, and somehow I found, I found a voice, but I sure as shit can't do anything else. <laughs>